Welcome to the Readings Podcast. I'm Robbie Egan, a bookseller at Readings Carlton, and I've the great pleasure this morning of introducing a great Australian writer, Tony Birch. Tony's written six books of fiction, including the short story collections Shadowboxing, Father's Day and the Promise, and the novels Blood and Ghost River, all of which have received critical acclaim, including the Victorian Premier's Award for Indigenous Writing for Ghost River, while Blood was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. Importantly, however, we are here as there's a new Tony Birch book, which is a cause for celebration, certainly at my house, where we all read Tony's work, and of course at Readings, where we've proudly supported Tony's writing over the years and happily taken his money over the counter. So welcome, Tony. Congratulations on the new book of short stories called Common People, uh, which is a wonderful collection, I must say. Um, You've written a lot about the lives of what I'm going to generalise as the economically marginalised Uh, And in Common People, I think you do this brilliantly. I like that you take the commonplace truth of people's lives, like making a buck and finding someone to care about, dealing with a kind of, I guess, a mundane horror of existence. So can you talk to us about what draws you to this? Well, it's always been a natural inclination. Um, I think you could argue that my writing has a... It's political in some senses, but I never write stories with a overt political intention or message. I think I just have a natural ability to, to engage with people that I see on the margins, that real-life people or characters I create with fiction, and what I do is I, I place them at the centre of a narrative so that we can get a greater understanding of those sorts of lives, to understand those lives in, in more depth. And if you were to take um, a very simple idea in relationship to this if we think of say homeless people or homelessness in in big cities around Australia around the globe often people we see sitting um, on the ground maybe with a hat in front of them and a sign asking for some money we don't really know the circumstances that, that put those people in those situations and what I'm interested in doing is exploring through fiction the potential of, of depth in the lives of those people so that if we're to make decisions about how we feel about the marginalised, I think we need to know more about them and be more informed about them and then we can make, I suppose, more responsible decisions about how we in, engage with those sorts of people. Yeah, that's um, that's the takeaway I got thematically from the book um, is that... Um, common people aren't really that common. The commonality is the sort of horrible experiences at the, you know, the hands of people who exercise power, but individuals' lives are anything but common. And you're right specifically about homeless people in one story where an ex-alcoholic woman finds some homeless people, buys them some cigarettes, and it's a a beautiful moment. Um, The Aboriginal experience of reservation life, of, you know, displacement, families torn apart is, is sadly very common in human mm-hmm. existence, but their individual lives aren't. And there's a story called Colours, which I think beautifully sort of covers all of this about a young boy who's brutalised the police on the way mm-hmm. home from his old, old, I think it's his grandfather's in, a, in an old person's home. And the kid kind of engages in something a little mystical. I don't want to give the story away. It was so beautiful. But um, I think what you're talking about is that there's a sort of mystery and richness to our 
our souls and our lives that um, gets lost a bit in modern life? Am I on the right track there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just two indicators, and again, here I'm talking firstly about influence rather than the stories. I, along with several other writers for many years, were involved in a writing project with people who were either homeless or living a marginalised existence over the other side of the river. So we were doing some work at the St Kilda Library. And I worked with those people, I think, for about four years, for four weeks toward the end of each year. And the thing that you realise about people who may find themselves on the street or living in places like the Gatwick Hotel is that when you understood or got to learn their life story, they were actually people who could be yourself or people you know very well who are not living that existence. So that a person can find themselves on the street very quickly if, say, they're unemployed. For some people, you're only a few paychecks away from being poverty-stricken. People could find themselves on the street because they've had a nervous breakdown because one of their children died or they went through a marriage breakup and it caused enormous distress. So what I learned about in those instances were that people who find themselves in situations of desperation are people like us who are just not as fortunate as us and any one of us, I mean, any one of us could to, could go through the same situation. So, so that's the first point. And I think the second point is that while some people, and I don't want to preempt my critics, some people, even people who like my work, will talk about it as grim. I actually, um, one of my favourite filmmakers, most influential is a Japanese filmmaker, Koryada, and he writes and directs films about everyday life of people in Japan, experiences that you never see or understand from this part of the world. But his notion is that life generally is difficult. Life can be really hard, and the value that you get out of life is how you deal with difficulty, how you deal with hardship and how you come through it, whether it connects you to people or disconnects you. And in a way, I think what he's saying is... Yeah, and I think what he's saying (laughs) is we understand how important life is to us and our families and friends when we're tested. And if we're never tested, well, we really don't touch life in in a valuable way. So my stories are about people being tested and how they face up to that test and how they come through it or don't come through it. Yeah, a lot of people don't have the classic support structures, no, financial exactly. or even you know, emotionally, do they? Yeah, and I think for the rest of us who are witnessing hardship in others, this is one of our the reasons we turn away from people is that the other choice to turn towards people is, is asking something of us. It's asking us That's to right, engage. That's right, to get over your repulsion or whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, and I think if you do that, you actually get rewarded. Because, again, I've met people who otherwise, yeah, you might want to talk to or you think they're a bit bit nutty or something, and you say, no, no, I'll, and you chat to them and you find out there's something really valuable about them. Such as the good Howard, perhaps? Can well, you tell the, us a bit about that story? I know we don't want to ruin them for people. but No, well, the good Howard is, is the earliest story that I wrote for this, and to put it simply, the good Howard was a related to a piece of graffiti that used to be on a wall in Albion Street, West Brunswick, and I used to catch a bus along that street every day, and if anyone knows Albion Street, it, it's the worst street to drive in in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> you can get locked down there pretty easily and I used to sit on the bus and look across to this piece of graffiti that said Howard lied and sold out on refugees which was about the ex-prime minister John Howard and I used to muse about the notion well if I was sitting on the bus and looking out my name was Howard would I feel (laughs) implicated and then I riffed off that and created this rough sort of eccentric character 
Howard, but I didn't want to create a guy who you think I oh, was just a bit of a nutter. He's a character who actually offers some really good advice to another person on the bus. So in other words, that's about a relationship between two men. One guy you might think's a bit a bit out there, but in fact there's some essential wisdom he has which he imparts on someone else, which becomes an invaluable lesson for him. Yeah, it's it's a lovely story. It's interesting you say, you talk about people perceiving or commenting that your work is grim. Uh, I don't agree with that. In fact, I, I found common people to be very funny. Mm. Uh, the sense that everyone is too busy surviving to even think about bigger issues doesn't, you know, say that you can't have humour in, in, in life and existence. and. Um, I think probably of Ghost Train, which is, I think, the opening story yeah. from memory. Two women driving in the pre-dawn, freezing cold, dark, to go meat packing to yeah. make, a, make a buck. Yeah. And one of them, Marion, I think her name is, has a, a Barack Obama T-shirt on. Yeah. And she's just had breast augmentation surgery, yes. so her huge tits are bulging Barack Obama's face out. Like and Louis it's, Armstrong. It's an incredibly funny moment for what is really an unpleasant kind of story in, in that way. And, yeah. But these women have a lovely connection and that's that kind of – I found it very funny. Well, I'm glad I, you did. I hope you – oh, no. otherwise I've mis misread oh, your no, work no. terribly. <laughs> no, I, and Pete, you're right that, I mean, um, that story and, and probably Party Lights um, in, yeah, that, in the book is that, of course, I wanted the human to work and I wanted it to work through two women who are crude in some ways, who are really sassy and are tough women. Yeah, these are single – Parents, single mothers who have been sort of you know, dealt a bad hand by the blokes that they've been married with or engaged with, but they've come out of it as tough, resilient women. And and I like that conversation they have in the car on the way to the to the temporary abattoir because that's what tough women are like. And I really look to models in my own family for those women. So yeah, whether it be my aunties, my mother, or my sisters. Um, I love their conversations, which are about women being able to mix it with anyone in relationship to, to what they talk about. So the humour is, is, is deliberate. And in that story, of course, there is um, some, well, whether it's sadness or there's real confrontation in that story at, at certain points, I like the way the humour and something more serious work together very effectively. And I think that I love those two characters. And what I've found is I've written more. So as you said, this is my sixth work of fiction. I've loved working with um, the female voice and female characters more and more. Okay. Well, that takes me to a key question. I really enjoyed the writing of female characters uh, in Common People. And I've heard you speak a number of times about strong women in your life. Um, I kind of want to go tangentially. I, I think women are going to have to be strong because I see where we are headed as a globe is to some kind of weird populist fascism, which I don't quite comprehend. But um, as a public intellectual and writer, where do you think we're heading? Well, I think in relationship to what you just said, and if there's any any connection to the book, it's that one of the things that we, we, we would note, say, in Western cultures is that whatever else has changed and whatever... Um, issues of equalisation have occurred, you know, you're still talking about a culture politically and economically that's dominated by men. And yep. it's not a question of would we women run the world better. The fact is you don't have enough women in public life. You're, you're losing that um, valuable 
addition to your public culture. So um, at a level of where we're heading, I think unless we get more people of different backgrounds into public life, we're heading for a fairly grim outcome. I mean, you've only got to look at the situation in Australia, the US and Great Britain to understand that. The other thing I think that I don't want to centralise women, but the fact is that I think, um, say, in the Aboriginal community, women are much more... um, take on much stronger roles of leadership in grassroots communities but again they're not at the leadership level of a lot of what you might call public um at the public level of aboriginal engagement with the mainstream community so you lose that wonderful quality by not appointing women to those senior roles so that's an issue for me the way that it's working in my fiction though is much more fundamentally that the strength and toughness of the women in this collection is really what highlights I, I consider to be the resilience of people on the margins. So that you, um, when you think of a story like Worship, the one you talked about, about the alcoholic grandmother and the people she meets on the street, yeah, you've actually got four women in that story. You've got the grandmother, you've got the homeless woman, and you've the got the daughter and you've got the granddaughter. And in a way, I'm looking at that gener- generational qualities of women. So even that story that the the grandmother who we know has been a serious drinker, in the end it's her determination and her resilience that get her through some really difficult moments in that story. Okay, on, um, well, alcohol, which is a potent force in a lot of your fiction, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, about those that control it, those that can't control it. Um, My experience of a father who was an alcoholic uh, rings true in your stories to me. Um, but you also write about drugs in this book, mm-hmm. which is, I can't remember the title, Party Lights, that's yeah. right. So there's a sort of hopeless drug dealer who mashes yeah. together all of his stash into a weird concoction and yeah. it turns out quite surreal. I wasn't quite sure how to read that, but we, yeah. I don't want to give it away again. Um, but again, it's very funny. So yeah. people with these addiction problems, do you use humour to humanise them? Well, I, I won't give away the ending, but that's the real aspect toward the end of that story. That's based on, I think, being a, a good bird as a writer. I was sitting at a cafe in Houston on my way to Washington, and I was introduced to a big American in a, in a 10-gallon hat who said, are oh, you Aussies, are you? You know, he was intrigued by our voice, and he wanted to know what we were doing, and we said we're a group of writers going to Washington. I said, what do you do? And he told me what he did, which is what Mash appeared. together drugs? No, no. no. <laughs> How he gets rid of um, empty houses, what he does. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no. He wasn't the <laughs> drug dealer. He was the demolition man. And I just wrote that down. And then to go back to what you say is a surreal outcome, he told me such a surreal story. I thought, I want to match that with some sort of – surreal experience and that's how the drug story came about the other issue though that i think you're really onto something here is that i've often written stories which are quite humorous which may deal with drugs or deal with alcohol and some people see that yeah what is there a level or or even death yeah is there responsibility there should i be more moralistic about it and you notice in that story death star that one of the things that one of the drug dealers does He's getting harassed by a kid on a push bike in a caravan park, so he gives him a handful of ecstasy tablets <laughs> yes. and says, Unusual, don't, but... yeah, don't ride your bike. I love that moment. And I think that, yeah, when you're writing about alcohol and, and, and drugs is that some of it, the behaviour of people who are addicted, you behave in a quite ludicrous, irrational way that you think is quite logical. So I don't drink alcohol at all, but when I did, I used to be able to rationalise my binge drinking in ways that have no rational 
um, basis at all. But that's what you do when you when you love to engage in substance abuse. You can legitimise it in all sorts of ways that make complete sense to you. So in a way, for those characters in those sorts of stories, the way they behave to themselves is completely logical, whereas us mm. as viewers or readers... We see it as absurd. So I love to play with the absurd notion of what's happening in that story. And I really enjoyed I really enjoyed writing the humour in that story. I thought it was funny. Yeah, very funny. <laughs> no, it was great. <laughs> um, talking, well, drugs anyway, to sort of segue, um, I know that you're really interested in crime stories. Yeah. And we talked a lot about the City of Shadows, you know, the, yep. the black and white photographs from Sydney, which yeah, that's you could right. write yeah. a thousand stories from. Peter Doyle. Absolutely amazing, yeah. Um, but you've written a pretty straight-up crime story in this book, which is... Um, Frank Slim. Frank Slim, exactly, which you mentioned to me the other day. Now, can you tell us a bit about Frank Slim, this sort of terrifying hard man who may or may not have a conscience, and then you've got Viola, another strong woman character, the madam who does have a heart of gold. Well, it's interesting. This might sound quite bizarre to people that um, I was watching a documentary set in Canada and it was set amongst sort of transient communities who used to live around mining towns and there was this what you might call today a slum community that thrived after a mining um, town sort of went into bust. And it was one of these really dynamic sort of criminal um, suburbs, environments of a big Canadian city, which I forget. And then they were interviewing people who'd grown up in those slums. And these two old women said, they started talking about this mystery man called Frank Slim. So he's a real right, life... Again, bowbirding, yeah. He's a real life man somewhere in Canada. And I was just mesmerised by that name, Frank Slim. So I thought I'm going to use him as a character. I had written the front end of that story around Viola, who runs a, a brothel in the inner city of Melbourne, nominally. Um, and that's based partly on the fact that I knew a woman who kept a brothel in Fitzroy, a very famous brothel called Rita Carroll, in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And I knew a boy who basically lived there, who'd been left there by one of the women who worked there, and she raised him. So I had that as a real-life um, vignette. And then I had this notion of this character. What really drives that story, though, is the heart of gold part is about her adoration of this boy, she, this beautiful boy who comes into her life. But then the real point of the story is that when she's treated really badly, quite violently by, by someone, how will she react? And her then engagement of Frank Slim as someone to do something for her was the crux of the story because I was very interested in the notion of a woman again who's treated very badly by a, by men or by a man, her reaction is to engage another man. And there is a, a moment in this story where someone says to her, you get a man to do your dirty work for you. And she says, that's right, and I'm paying for it. So it's like she's in charge. So for me, it might sound Odd to well, say she this, had power. Yeah, there's a very strong female role in a relative sense. Now, people outside that class of people in real life might see that as an odd form of a moral outcome, but I know the women in my life, like my mother, my aunties, really, I think they'll love that story, and when they come to that section of the story where Viola gets her revenge, they're going to be going, yes. They're yeah, going, I certainly was. Yeah. So I, re I actually... It was one of the other stories that I really enjoyed writing. And when I say really enjoyed, some stories you have to work harder. 
I didn't have to do a lot of work with that story. It flowed really easy on the early drafts and uh, it's one of those ones where you, you feel like you're cruising when you're driving and I don't mean in a lazy way. It's all working for you and uh, I really love the outcome. Yeah. I'm not surprised to hear you say that because it reads really smoothly. It's yeah. a very easy story to read. Yeah. Um, I'm a crime fiction fan and I, I like crime movies and television shows. You've written the violence really well. Was that hard? Because violence, you get bad writing around sex and violence often. Oh, not if you read enough Cormac McCarthy, you know okay. what to do. <laughs> no, quite, quite seriously is that um, in, in that in that segment in the rooming house, what, there were t- you, it's actually interesting. I wanted the dialogue to be quite minimal. Frank Slim never speaks at all in the story, never speaks at all. And when she talks to Frank or instructs Frank, it's sometimes just with a nod of the head or him knowing what to do. So you're talking about two professionals. That's interesting. I hadn't noted that. Yeah, yeah so it's it's action-driven. Um, and that goes back, if you go back, to, which I know you've read, if you went back to my first book, Shadow Boxing, and a story called The Lesson, which is a story about the, boxing, the boxing in the backyard, a boxing yeah. lesson, there's very little dialogue in that very active segment. It's around the physicality. So... As a writer, or the way I approach writing, I'm really interested in what you might call physical movement. So whether it be a boy sparring in a quite almost with an aesthetic beauty to it or fighting, or in this case someone getting um, their just desserts, I'm very interested in the physicality and I think that's what drives that sort of writing. So I, I see the action. So I know people, it's a cliche, but I see it cinematically and then I try to write in a way which shows that as, as you would show it through a camera lens. Okay. Have you got any um, crime writing heroes or people that you really enjoy? No, it's interesting. I read a lot of crime fiction, but I don't follow a particular crime writer. Mm. I mean, quite seriously, obviously someone like um, Cormac McCarthy, people will often talk about his seminal works like Blood Meridian, for instance. Um, I've, I've read those, but... I find that there is, by the possibly with the exception, there is a remarkable story by James Lee Burke James called Lee Burke, the- um, West Texas, 1947. I've read that crime story several times because there's something in that crime story which I suppose is at the essential heart of wanting to write what you might call a crime narrative with at least literary pretensions. Yeah, that's a very good story, actually. Yeah. That's the southern... It's the one about the brother and sister who set fire to their stepmother. Um, how are we going for time? We can keep going. Yeah. You've recently been in Canada. I yeah. know you do a lot of work around climate change. Do you want to um, not just talk about your fiction, but a little bit about your non-fiction writing and climate change, I guess, is w- which you've been focusing on? Well, the climate change work is based on um, an experience I had about five years ago, which is a creative writing experience. I was offered um, through the Wheeler Centre to work with 15-year-old kids here in Australia and in Europe and to encourage kids to engage with the issue of climate change through their creative work. And in doing that, I knew that I'd be coming into contact with climate scientists or people who know the area um, well. So I literally decided I need to, to do a lot more work as research, boning up and reading. And the more I did, the more I wanted to be involved in the, the work more formally. I was teaching creative writing at the time at Melbourne University. Um, and I was very lucky to over two years ago now, I took up a five-year research fellowship at Victoria University, just looking 
at climate change. And what I, my, my, my project essentially, Robbie, is pretty straightforward, is that I want to do climate change research that allows me to get communities to come together and work together more proactively on solutions. So that's part of it. I want to look at things like Indigenous knowledge historically and how that informs our current discussion and future discussions around climate. And the Canada trip was an opportunity to do a two-week residency at the Banff Centre, which is the Centre for Creativity and Environmental Studies. Um, There were 10 writers from around the world brought together. We got to work on our own creative projects. So I'm working on the, essentially, I was there to work on the um, protests against the Adani coal mine in Queensland, which is a long essay that I'm writing. But I got to work there with a wonderful guy called Curtis Gillespie, who runs a magazine in Canada, a literary magazine called 18 Bridges. And I started to write and finished what you might call more of a personal narrative essay about the experience of going to Canada and juxtaposing that with some environmental work I'm doing here in Australia. So that that's a long essay that, that, I, that I'll publish. But essentially, as a writer and going to a place like Banff, and I had a lovely one-on-one meeting with Naomi Klein, um, went to a great lecture she gave on a new book around um, Donald Trump, had breakfast with her is that essentially it was about bringing a group of people together who are interested in doing something proactive about climate change and where writers or filmmakers, a couple of photographers, thinking of ways to do that, what you might call creative responses that engage people. So I'm very lucky that it brings a lot of my interests together. So I'm still working at a creative level, but in regard to the climate change work, it's it's work that and writing that I'm doing to engage a wide a wider public discussion about how we confront the realities of climate change, particularly when we're faced with quite ignorant climate change denial policy leaders again in Australia and certainly the US and, and Great Britain. So in big Western nations, English speaking the English-speaking West is really dragging its feet very badly on this issue and it's, it's quite concerning for me, but it's concerning in a way that I want to respond to rather than be completely dejected by. So the one thing about climate change that we know for us who are concerned about it, you can feel quite overwhelmed by what we see as a, a really big issue that we have to face and it's an issue that can disable people. And my, my project is saying is to say to people, let's not be disabled by this. Let's find productive, cooperative and energetic ways to confront it and deal with it. Yeah, that is difficult, though. We're in this kind of ultra-polarisation world where it's yes or no, and it's um, the yeah. impasse is pretty great. It is very difficult, but and I suppose and maybe you get an over-inflated view of the positive aspect of it. One thing that I'd say about working with groups of people, so let's take the Banff Centre experience, what you do know is I was there with people from all over the world who at their own level, at grassroots level, are doing remarkable things. And deeply engaged. Yeah, so yeah. I, I want to take, I'm going to take that lead rather than be defeated. So quite simply, if I've got a choice to be defeated by someone like Donald Trump or, you know, um, Tony Abbott or anyone else well, who runs... Well, we run, can't be. Yeah, so you, you, you've got an option and that option is to to bypass those people and work with people who can who can do good things together. And there, and there are great people out there. The other thing, of course, around climate change is that it affects the poor 
more strongly if you're living in a community. If if anyone here you know, knows anything about Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2007, what we do know is the poorer you were, the more likely it is you're going to be you're have your suffer life more. destroyed. Yeah. yeah. So on behalf of the poor of Indigenous communities, for those people, this is a human rights issue. So for me, I'm not going to abandon. I'm not going to abandon those people. And I, I know that sounds a bit self-righteous because I'm not going to save them either individually. But if those people are going to face up to that struggle, someone like myself who's relatively well off and not impacted on, I have an opportunity to do something valuable. And if, if I have a frustration, it's more that, that in a city like Melbourne, there are a lot of people who are doing pretty well for themselves and we're the people who need to stand up for people who don't have that um, power themselves. We, we can empower ourselves. I mean, again, it's always about power, isn't it? Yeah. Um, on that, I think it's part of literature being really important and mm-hmm. more important than ever. We really need the creative nonfiction writing mm-hmm. and and fiction to shine light on these things. And I don't I don't like issues based fiction particularly much, but if it's well done, it, it really opens things up for conversation. The other thing on that was not to minimalise the experts that you you've met with and worked with, I'm really interested in what youth have to say about this and what they wrote. I think that's key because they're the ones that have got to drive this in the next decade, two decades. Um, you mean what the people in Banff? You said you were dealing with, no, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds oh, and, well, and what the, they, yeah. their responses oh, are really sorry, key, Robbie. I think. Yeah, the kids I worked with were remarkable. And if I could, if I could say a couple of quick things about it, one is they're not apathetic, they're highly engaged. Two is they're angry because they feel that people in power and maybe their parents' generation haven't done enough. And three is that they're not demoralised. They were they start you know kids calling not demoralised. No, yeah. they call themselves climate change warriors. So they want to act and they want to be led by people who have power. So they did some great. We did a, a an event at the Berlin Literature Festival for in 2014 and 2015 and the work the kids produced for that was remarkable and again we we have a responsibility to that generation to work with them because they're the ones going to be left with a legacy and you know you think a generation or two generations ahead i'll be dead but these young kids who will then be you know in their 40s and 50s they're going to have to deal with what we've left behind so i want to make sure that i'm working with them now and working effectively and they need to hear they need to hear from voices other than those who are negative about climate to consider Again, not what that polarised points of view, but someone who's positive yeah. about and, what and we when, can Yeah, and when do, you yeah. say positive, it's not to be Pollyanna about it or to be unnecessarily positive. It's I believe you've got to point out what the real challenge is and you've also got to point out how you can deal with that challenge or, or confront it. And I think we have a choice to act individually or to act collectively, and I don't think we'll get anywhere unless we find like-minded people to act collectively with. So that's my that's my project. Okay, terrific. Now just to drag it back to fiction again, um, you've six works now, I think, isn't it? Yeah, six, six, six books published. of fiction and a poetry book. Um, have you got more books in you? Where are you headed with the fiction writing? Because you seem in great form. Common People um, is very well written. I really enjoy whatever it. Whatever I do next, it'll be a novel. Um, I've got a couple of individual short stories still to come out, but I know that that rich vein of writing that I had for um, this book, for Common People, is over in the sense of you work in sort of blocks that seem to, you know, I got a couple of stories going and then 
I literally wrote several stories quite quickly, so I was on, as you say, or yeah. you're in the zone. Um, it's interesting because you did mention the crime fiction. I literally have to decide soon where to go with a next book, which would be a novel. So I have a a distinct crime novel idea and a fairly distinct, you know, again, what you might call literary fiction idea, although my work is, even when you look at works like Blood and Ghost River, there's elements of crime in them anyway. Um, I have to make a decision about what to do there, but I won't make it this year because I'm literally working on climate change essays at the moment and they'll take up the rest of the year. And I think that my next book, well, I've been very prolific. I've had six books out in 11 years, which is quite a lot. It is, yeah. I think my next book's probably going to be three or four years away. Okay. Um, because you better I, sell a lot of this one then. Yeah, so a lot of this one, and then we build up the anticipation. It's like waiting for the third instalment of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> one more thing on the fiction. Um, I was talking to my daughter last night about uh, what they sell in readings kids, and they often recommend blood to young adults, particularly males who don't read a lot, and they, they might say, oh, I really like this book, The Outsiders. What have you got? That's interesting, isn't it? Because you haven't written specifically for young adults. No, I haven't, but it is, it is interesting that you say that. Um, I can tell you now my first book, Shadowboxing, which has been taught a lot in schools, is taught, yes, it has, yeah. taught usually at year 11. And when I visit those schools, the first thing the teachers say, or if it's been taught in prisons or juvenile justice centres, the teachers always say that boys in particular who never read or can't read, they love shadowboxing and they've read... That would say it's the first book they've ever read cover to cover. Um, my last book of short stories, The Promise, is also taught in Victorian schools and does well. Um, I think the reason my books would be attractive to that age group is that it usually engages them with subject matter that they're familiar with and sometimes characters they're familiar with. And it is able to engage those readers in a way that doesn't, well, talk down to them and discusses, you know, serious social content in a way that they they believe is authentic. So I, if there is anything of a quality there, it would say that the writing, it's the authenticity. And I suppose the other thing, even though I've got five kids, Robbie, and you, you've been around teenage kids a lot yourself, you can still be a bit naive about what you think works for kids at an age level. Yeah. So that if I'm looking at shadow boxing and, you know, kids sometimes as young as 13, 14 are reading it, and it's a fairly tough book in some ways, I can think, oh, maybe that's not the right age group and suddenly become a bit conservative. But when you go and talk to those kids, they're, they're right on top of that material. Yeah. yeah they're, they're much I've more... I've got no problem with that. Yeah. I, I push adult books onto and And they're much more aware often. of how the world works than, than sometimes than we, we are or we forget. So mm. I have no problem if um, Reading's Kids Store recommends blood to some of its teenage readers. I don't know if they'd go well putting it in the window, though. That might be a poor marketing decision. We might try it. Might, we might test the market. Yeah, I, yeah. get them to read um, Party Lights. Okay, anything that gets kids reading, of course, is important. It'll get the conversation around the dinner table going anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, I think uh, that'd probably do us, Tony. Thank you very much for joining us today, Tony. Tony Birch's new book is called Common People. It's published by the University of Queensland Press and it's available at all good bookshops, but most importantly, of course, available at readings. Thank you. All right, thanks, Tony.